Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com slash laststandmedia. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by my brother, Dagan Mordecai Moriarty. Dagan, <laughs> thank you for joining me today. I knew it. I could have chose like 20 different opening lines and my opening line was going to be, go Mordecai. Go Mordecai. <laughs> I had a few, I had just a few in my notes written down, like I was maybe going to call you Old Custer, something like that, but... <laughs> this book presupposes... You know, pagoda. Maybe he didn't? Yeah. <laughs> 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 I was, it's funny, because with that line, first of all, I haven't seen this movie. We're, we're, today's episode of Knockback is about the Royal Tenenbaums, as I'm sure you guys know from clicking on it, but when, I, when that line happened, because I haven't seen the movie in so long, I laughed out loud, but then I was like, I remember that being so funny, I think, from the trailer of the movie or like the commercial. I think you're like, right. Everyone, like everyone was saying that, I feel like, for a little while. <laughs> but uh, Owen Wilson, who Diggin and I both love a great deal, going back to Bottle Rocket and Shanghai Noon and all that, which I'm sure we'll get to at some point. But Of course. Yeah, today's episode of Knockback is about the Royal Tenenbaums, the 2001 Wes Anderson film. We'll talk about that momentarily. But before we do, Dave, how's uh, everything going? How's your life? Everything's going good. Everything's good. You know, I usually know what I'm going to lead in with. You know, I think about something funny or a a cute little anecdote to open the show with. And I didn't know what I was going to talk about today. And I was working and, you know, I haven't had the most restful week. So I'm a little, (laughs) you guys got to put up with me. I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit fuzzy this week. But then I walked outside about an hour or so ago to get our son off the bus. So I go out and get Graydon off the bus. We're walking up the street. And one of my neighbors who just got her kids off the bus was like, oh, wait, come here. Check this out. So Graydon and I run over to the center of the cul-de-sac and she points. And the two houses on the end of the cul-de-sac, the roofs, the two roofs are lined with turkey vultures. I mean, they're... I'm not exaggerating. There was 40 to 50 turkey vultures. I mean, I've never seen anything like this in my entire life. Just on my neighbor's two roofs, like the complete, completely covered from one end of the roof to the chimney. There's just covered with turkey vultures. They're all facing the same way and they're all just sitting there. And I, my first thought was like, I said to my neighbor, I was like, and I don't know, you got to forgive my, ignor- my ignorance on this because I really don't know. I still don't know. I said, do turkey vultures migrate? Like, what the hell is going on? Because usually, <laughs> usually we see geese. The great turkey vulture migration <laughs> on the American continent. <laughs> Can you imagine? It would be horrifying. It would be like a bunch of pterodactyls. 
But I was like, what are the because they weren't they weren't feeding. You know, sometimes you see them. It's pretty rural out here. If there's a dead deer or a dead animal that they'll be, you know, flying around that and they'll be you'll see eight or ten of them on the ground. But this many turkey vultures and they weren't obviously after any carrion or anything like that. There's nothing on the ground. So it was really hey, good sh- word. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I get vocabulary points for that one. I can't I can't talk like that around the house because holy automatically I say a word like that. And Helene just calls me out for it. She's like, wait, what did you do? <laughs> like mid. Carrion's a great word. Oh, you know, like mid. See, you you would appreciate that. Helene would just te- tease me. And then my kids are old enough to do the same thing. Like, what? Just say, you know, can't you just say carcass or just say dead animal or something, you know? <laughs> but I thought that was too no, crazy. This, you have to talk like J.R.R. Tolkien when you talk to your, your family. I was going to say that that's a pretty ominous thing to, to witness, though. I feel like maybe you're going to like turn into a goat tonight or something. It's like something out of the witch. I have to be honest with you. I'm glad they weren't on my roof. Now, maybe it's close enough for the omen, whatever bad omen is going to affect us to be, you know, maybe just by proximity, it's close enough. But. I, I, that was one of my first thoughts. I was like, I, I'm glad that was on my roof. You're going to wake up tomorrow and the house, that house, your neighbor's house is going to be totally gone as <laughs> if it was never there. And all of your neighbors will have no idea what you're talking about uh, when you're like, what happened? Uh, what happened to the Smiths? And, and they're like, what are you talking about? That's been an empty lot for 40 years. Wow. You know, you just, that's what's going to happen. You just rod Serling to that shit. You really did. I just I'm about to bust into your office. We're smoking a cigarette. <laughs> Let you know what's going on. <laughs> How about you? What's what's uh, going? Any turkey vultures in your neck of the woods? Oh no, no, I don't. I, well, maybe I don't know. I do go outside every day because uh, I walk the dog a couple times, but which is unbelievable. But no, this week has just been dedicated to launching Last Stand Media, which is Collins Last Stand's new form, as I think everyone knows or most people know that are listening to the show at this point. And so that's just been occupying a lot of my time. But I'm just such a ball of stress the last few weeks. I always have a baseline of like just abject terror, <laughs> you know, through and then I just kind of work my way above that and I get I get through it or whatever. Sure. But the anticipation of like doing this and then getting it out and just kind of it's just a lot of things to get in order and shout out to Dustin and Ben for for doing a lot of the grunt work while I was, you know, I was dealing with the lawyers about the trademarks and all that kind of stuff and whatever end of the year accounting stuff we had to do and all of that and big picture stuff while they were doing a lot of stuff in the trenches. So it wouldn't have happened without them. But I guess now that it's come out and it's successful or whatever, I'm still stressed out. Like, I feel like I have something to worry about, which is always kind of my my default. But (laughs) so I'm trying to kind of decompress the the playoffs from when we're recording this. The NFL playoffs will begin tomorrow, which is awesome. That's that's exciting. And so that'll be a nice distraction and a bunch of games to play. And I just I just haven't had a moment to decompress and so i need to kind of actively seek that out and and uh, but it's been a busy week and it, and it really did go by very quick so you know i'm glad that it's behind us so that we can move on definitely with uh last stand media and all of that and busy week successful week for you though yeah you know what though just in knowing that you have to take the time to decompress just in that knowledge having that sort of being that introspective that's half the battle right there so now you just do it but that you know, that's where I don't envy you. You know, you do have you're this entrepreneur. Yes, your company is successful, but you have all these things to do, all these tasks to do and accomplish that, you know, and some of them aren't the most savory, you know, some of them are a little probably not to your preference. Right? Like dealing with lawyers. You really don't want to do that, but you have to. So I admire you for that. You have to kind of navigate all those more unpleasant tasks or or at least less fun. Those are the less fun aspects of what you have to do and 
carrying out your business. So, you know, but just knowing that you have to balance it out. And also, you know, I always tell you this, don't forget to enjoy it. You know, take the time to just soak it in, be cognizant of it and just be like, wow, look at what I created here and how much people appreciate it and all, all of my supporters and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's awesome. Congratulations to you on a, on an epic week. I mean, you, you changed around things, you introduced, you ushered in a whole, a whole new phase. So it's, it's big things. I think I said it because people were making fun of me in the comments when I said something new, like I never thought I'd be a leader of men, which is, <laughs> which is a funny thing to say. There's no doubt that that's a weird and funny thing to say, but it is strange, like just finally delegating. And um, it's funny because Ramon is doing like he always does the music for us for all the shows. So he's doing the show, the music for Defining Duke. Oh, awesome. Which is our new Xbox show. But I was trying to tell him I was getting almost frustrated with him. And I feel bad because I was like, I am trying to 2021 is the year of delegation. I can't deal with any of this stuff anymore. I need to worry about the content and making content, playing games, keeping up with everything and doing like biz dev and all that kind of stuff, which, you know, we, we don't even have like real active business development, which is right. not good for a business. So there's things that I need to do. And but I still had to like kind of deal with him directly for this, the uh, song and uh, which is fine because it's awesome. And I'm, he's my best friend. So I'm happy to do that. But it was sh- it's showing that even like at the very top, the apex of my social order. I'm trying to like be like, I can't talk to Dustin. <laughs> I don't want to deal with this. So, uh, yeah, I'm trying to just lessen my load a little bit. And ho, uh, ho. Oh, oh. And uh, oh. I, but <laughs> I'm trying to lessen the load a little bit. And then I got to concentrate on like some of the game stuff for Lily Mo. So a lot to do. A lot, lot going on. But, oh, I brought up the leader of men thing because I was like, well, I'm, I guess I am kind of like just a businessman. And that's like my, you know, I always like, look, you know, when you get those like, well, like with the recent census, you get the thing and you have to fill it out. And it's like, what did you do for a living? And there's like a bunch of different options. And I always laughed in those things because one of them was like businessman. It's like, what the fuck is that? It's <laughs> so broad. Businessman? Yeah, it's such a broad thing. Yeah. It's like salary, man. So. <laughs> Anyway, on we go. Yeah, Last Stand Media. Support us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Last Stand Media. Collins Last Stands. Patreon. It all brings you to the same place now. The links. And um, we're working on merch. Uh, obviously, we actually had merch pretty much ready to go. And you can see now why we... I was like, no, wait. We shouldn't do that. Because I was I, when I knew in October so that we were going to change the logo and stuff, I'm like, it would be wrong to sell this stuff to people. Sure. Smart. Uh, knowing that we are going to... The logo is going to be totally different. So and it really isn't totally different, but but now those older products are retro, so that plays into our. That's show. true, you know. So if there's nostalgia junkies out there, you may want the CLS merch because that might be that might be worth something someday, you know. Mint in box, mint in package. Yeah, I'm gonna just jump in and hope for the best, I guess. With uh, <laughs> with everything that we're doing with Last Day Media, I guess I'm kind of just like moving forward and hoping for the best. <laughs> And I think we're going to be in great shape. Oh, you're, you're going to be per- you're going to be golden, my friend. You, and you, you know what I mean? You, you, you got it all figured out. You do have that business acumen. But the nice thing about you is you have all the creative stuff that you bring to the table. So the fact that you're able to do the business, at least tolerate it and navigate it. And, you know, you'll keep up this, the part of the, the aspect of the company that you enjoy the most, which is creating content, you know, starring on sacred symbols and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, you're going to be things are just going to come out cherries my friend i promise you that well thank you oh so oh patreon.com slash last stand media early ad free access to every episode of this show and the other shows we do the ability to submit your questions comments concerns thoughts and ideas to the show 
and vote on show topic ideas. I think the next two that we're going to do are going to be shows that the audience voted on after this. So please look forward to it. Sweet. But in the meantime, Dig, the Royal Tenenbaums. This is one of the topics that you had chosen to do a few months ago. We're finally getting around to doing it. And this is a movie that came out in late 2001. I remember I was in 12th grade when it came out. It is a Wes Anderson film. And it was around this time that you and I were really into Bottle Rocket, which is another so, classic we, have, we haven't done for some reason. No. I don't know why we haven't done that one yet. But, but we'll get to that one at some point. But when I was watching this movie today, earlier in bed, I haven't seen it in years. I, I was taking notes and, and kind of going through some stuff. And I had realized, I don't know that I've seen almost anything Wes Anderson has done when I was looking at his filmography. And so it's almost as if I'm kind of like a poser. Like I was in on the first three. Right. So that's Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, and the Royal Tenenbaums. But I've never seen The Life Aquatic, and I've never seen anything after that. So when I, I guess I didn't realize that I was so detached from even the way this filmmaker and writer has evolved over time. So I was excited to talk to you about him because I know that you have a a passion for him, especially Rushmore. Oh, yeah. Which is another film we we haven't done. But it's kind of weird that we have, actually haven't gotten in the Wes Anderson. But this is a, a controversial topic, too, because we didn't get a ton of feedback on this one. Okay. But notable percentage of the feedback we got was actually sardonic or negative about the topic. Wow. And Phil Crone actually wrote in and said, can't believe it only took 150 episodes to run out of good movies. <laughs> wow. What? <laughs> Wow. <laughs> which is when I was good. So I don't go through the topics until I'm like right before the show. So I don't spoil anything for myself if I haven't seen it or I'm not ready. And I was surprised by that reaction. And I was surprised that there was kind of two similar reactions, but it's not the prevailing wisdom. Brandon Hardman wrote into us and said, this movie was my introduction to Wes Anderson. And while it's not my favorite work of his, here's hoping we get a knockback for the fantastic Mr. Fox. Uh-huh. I think it's his most important. This movie captures that painful feeling of nostalgia better than any movie I can think of. There's something poetic about a comedy that can make me feel sadness and regret stronger than many dramas. And I agree with this assessment of Brandon Hardman related to Hardman from Mega Man 3. <laughs> of course, we always like to give him a shout out. So, Dave, talk to me a little bit about the Royal Tenenbaums, like why you wanted to select this topic. I was it was one that you and I sent a list back and forth of the topics we want to do like 10 or 12 at a time. And that was one that stood out to me because I was like, oh, yeah, the Royal Tenenbaums. I haven't even really thought of that film in a long time. So anyway, talk to me about that. Yeah, you know, that surprises me. I wasn't really prepared to hear anything negative. Of course, there's always people out there that don't like something. You know, there's something that they don't like. or pe- There's, a, there's a, uh, a group of people that don't like a certain thing, even if it's very popular. But yeah, for me, I was actually excited for this episode because I thought, it, of course, it would be super fun to talk about one of my favorite filmmakers of all time. Who, you know, as you mentioned, we somehow haven't covered him just yet on the show, 150 plus episodes in. And I figured that this movie in particular would be a great place to start. It was Wes Anderson's third film, of course, as we mentioned. But I especially, and I especially love his first two movies. I, I, I was absolutely in love with Bottle Rocket and Rushmore, which I was introduced to both of those films and Wes Anderson in general when I was up in New England at my very first animation job, you know, working with fellow nerds. There was a lot of sort of film nerds that I worked with. And I think those guys took me to go see Rushmore at like a film festival or something. And then I kind of worked my way backwards into Bottle Rocket from there, which was like you and me had a real, you know, really had a, we were both really affectionate about that movie. And then Helene and I developed a bond over Bottle Rocket at two. That's one of her favorites. But I think this movie Apple is... Jack. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, how can you? You got it, Applejack, Kumar, the whole the whole crew. Ja- the only movie, the only Wes Anderson movie that James Caan has ever been in. So, Bottle Rocket will definitely be a topic for sure. But I thought it was a good place to start the conversation was with this third film because I think it's certainly among his most iconic films. And for me, maybe arguably the most iconic still of his entire filmography. Now, I'm really looking forward to his latest film, The French Dispatch. The trailer looks amazing. It was supposed to be out already. Got pushed back due to COVID. He kind of worked his way back from taking a little stop motion detour to getting back into a a live action project. And this movie looks amazing. So I was extra extra excited for that. Supposed to be released this year. Hopefully they, they get back on track with it. But I think this movie is filled with such memorable moments and imagery and some of his un, you know, most unforgettable characters who have gone on now 20 years on now to be remembered as classics. And a lot of people identify this film as Wes Anderson's masterpiece. I'm not so sure about that. I have conflicting thoughts about that, but that's really for you guys to decide. And the other thing about Wes Anderson is, for me, and where, where a lot of the appeal comes in, is he's one of the, our great contemporary directors who's known for his distinctive visual sense and his art direction. You know, we talk about creators like Tim Burton, who we just covered, and guys like Baz Luhrmann, and Dario Argento would certainly fall into this category. You know, guys or creators that are known to excel at their own unique brand of visual presentation. You know, each filmmaker, we look at movies in general, uh, the body of work, for instance, that's come out over the last 50 years, just in film. And we look at every filmmaker, every director has their own calling card. You know, some are great at drawing out the best performances from their actors. Some are great at directing action. Some are the most skillful at operating a camera. Some are just really adept at that. Some have a really astute sense of timing and some are the most comfortable in the editing room, like guys like George Lucas But then you have these individuals known for their unmistakable visual style, which is such a draw for me. You can just spot a Wes Anderson joint from about 20 miles away, you know, and I think it's it really he came into his own. You saw all those hints of what his style was developing to be and the way he incorporated music and all the visual visual touch tones and the color palette and all that kind of stuff that we'll talk about. But I think he really came to his own came into his own with the Royal Tenenbaums. And so that'll be a fun part of our conversation too. It's funny because Rube Rupak actually wrote in about this on Patreon. I was just going through the notes because he was asking what is so attractive. He was saying, hey, boys, love this pick. Wes Anderson's my favorite director of all time. His sense of humor and his level of attention to detail that goes into every frame is unmatched. Wanted to know what the quirks of his appeal to the artist in you the most to, or what I want to know what quirks of his appeals to your to the artist in you the most. So as me as a writer, perhaps you as a visual writer, uh, artist and a writer. To me, it is his use of color and symmetry for sure. Uh, I'm so glad you brought this up early on because even being thrust back into the Royal Tenenbaums and just Wes Anderson generally. I mean, I don't know since I've only seen three of his films. It's probably been 15 years since I've seen anything he's done. Maybe I mean I, I think it's been a long time since maybe I've seen Rushmore more recently. I don't know, but. It's something that is so striking, not only the the visual detail, like the pink house and all that, which I love and the fur coat and all the little kind of quirks of the movie that people remember, but also just the narration, the boldness to 
have Alec Baldwin in this case narrate the movie. I mean, it's not really a thing that happens. It's not something that movies. In fact, movies are created so that there doesn't need to be narration. Sure. That's like the, the exact reason why movies exist is to have some sort of visual representation of what's going on. But they have they do such a good job with exposition in the film and keeping things moving. And it moves at a really brisk pace. And that's what I remember. Not the the, the necessarily the narration part, but just the, the pacing, I think, is really attractive, too. And I remember that about Bottle Rocket and Rushmore, where like the movie doesn't this movie is 110 minutes long. It doesn't seem like it overstays its welcome at all. It feels like everything to Rube's point is very deliberate in every frame. And so I find that very attractive as well. And and it was a little disappointing when I looked at his filmography and, like I said, realized I just hadn't seen very much of what he has done. I just, I feel like I was like, Oh, what else has he done? I must've seen whatever. I'm not, you know, I'm not very good at that matching up directors, naturally matching up directors with films. I'm like, Oh, that's that guy. And even with actors, when people were writing into us about band of brothers and they're like, Oh yeah, this guy's in that. I think someone was like Michael Fassbender or something. I'm like, yeah, I don't even know who the fuck that is. And and I looked it up and I'm like, how do I not know that? You know, even when I looked at his face, I'm like, I don't know who this man is, you know? So, I'm just not very good in the in the film in the film industry of of connecting those dots, but you can kind of just tell it's Wes Anderson's work, and so I'm glad you brought that up early. But the film was a hit, made more than seventy million dollars at the box office twenty years ago, and it is a very funny and clever film about a quote unquote family of geniuses. <laughs> and so, Dig, I want to throw it over to you to kind of lay out the plot for us a little bit. And then, of course, we'll do what we usually do, I think, on the show, which is explore the plot through the characters. Yeah, that sounds perfect. I mean, I I would boil down the story. The story really does center around character and these very interesting characters. But I would just boil it down to say our story centers around a sort of once prominent New York family, sort of eccentric, old money styled family, now broken, each dealing with their own issues, anxieties and losses. Another way I would put it is the three Tenenbaum children, all of which come from these precocious beginnings as kids. As adults now, in the, in the modern age as we open the film, each struggling to come to terms with their own unhappiness as their historically neglectful father attempts to re-enter their lives and make amends. And, you know, hilarity ensues, basically. And I think really, to put it very simply, it's really, this is a story about the fallout from a divorce and how that thing can affect each member of a family. And I think I would argue it's also about sort of remorse in some sense. It's about, you know, realizing your mistakes and trying to make amends. So if you turn all the, if it, and, and how it affects each member of a family. And, they, you know, it's, it's so funny about the way Wes Anderson handles that, though, because you would think from that description, you're kind of in for... A dark ride. You know, it sounds really, it sounds really real. It sounds a bit heavy, but again, the way that he sort of deftly blends humor with serious stuff, the way he blends humor with an air of melancholy and, uh, you know, a very distinct brand of comedy that I think partially stems from Anderson's quirky, odd and eccentric characters, you know, who all march really to the beat of their own drum. The characters are often offbeat in the sense, but the thing is, they're not self-aware. They're appropriate for that slightly bizarre, exaggerated storybook world that they inhabit. There's a sincerity and an authenticity to the characters and to what they're going through. 
And to handle it, you know, the characters may seem funny and strange to us, but that's just who they are. There's a storybook and even fairy tale feel to this. And again, you mentioned with the with the narration, it almost feels like a fairy tale. It almost feels like you're reading a storybook or you're watching a play. And it's grounded in reality, but it also transcends reality. But I love the way that you could deal with a topic like this in such a stylized and whimsical way, if that makes sense. And I think, you know, with the Royal Tenenbaums being really his first box office success, really put Wes Anderson on the map. And what I love about this movie, too, another important thing to say is he said this in interviews, and I thought this was a really interesting bit, that in the first two movies, again, you could see sort of the way he was developing as a filmmaker and his calling cards tonally and his calling cards visually and all that kind of stuff. But he says that in making Bottle Rocket and Rushmore that, you know, he would sort of relent to his actors. He would sort of relent to his crew and his team in making a film if he wanted something a very, you know, he has a very particular vision, Wes Anderson, obviously. And when he wanted something a certain way, he would say, well, I was really kind of imagining it this way while they were shooting and somebody, whether it was his AD or an actor or somebody involved in the, in the movie besides him would say, well, you know, this is close enough. And he says he would relent, you know, over the first two projects and be like, he would give in and just be like, all right. But this is the first movie that he says he took a stand and he really was kind of a taskmaster in trying to have it his own way. And he didn't give in to that. Like if he wanted a shot a certain way, if he wanted a shot a certain length, if he wanted a performance delivered in a certain fashion, he got it this time. And I think that's why he's, I think you see that in the film. And I think you could kind of see that commitment to perfectionism in this film. And I, it's interesting to hear him say that, that this is the first time that he really kind of stood up for all his decisions and everything from the page that he, you know, he, he writes starts from the script. He's not just a director. So these are his creations. These are his characters. These are his words, his dialogue, his shots, the way he choreographs everything to music. We'll get into that. He really didn't give in. And he didn't give an inch with this movie. And I think that's really interesting, too. I think that's a big part of the conversation and why I still love it so much. I think it's a, I think it's a great watch. I watched it twice in the last day, actually. I just love it so much. And it's a quick watch, too. Yeah, it moves quick. Yeah. But, you know, I could also see it polarizing. for Because if you don't... His style is so specific. Not just with this movie, but anything in his canon over his filmography now. And I'm, I'm excited for you to see some of his films after this. Because I think... It just it delivers. It's always different. He has a, a stable cast that he recalls, but he's also has a he's also really committed to fresh faces. He wants to get new pe- He wants to experiment. He wants to get new players in. He wants to form new relationships. But the, his style is a vein that runs through it, you know. And his his calling cards are a vein that run through it. So I like. I think you're going to enjoy a lot of his subsequent films. But I think it starts here. I like absurdist humor. It's it's it kind of reminds me of The Office or something where it's almost not overtly supposed to be funny at all. It just is funny, yeah, because it's cr- <laughs> cringy or it's whatever whatever the case might be. You know, it's it's that it's absurdist in in a similar way, and I lo- I'm really attracted to that kind of stuff because it's the same. It's like when you think about Trailer Park Boys or the other things, like Always Sunny in Philadelphia is an example of like really surreal absurdist stuff, but. It's always funniest when everything is grounded, but it's still funny. And um, I feel like I, I, got, I got that around every corner watching this film, The Royal Tenenbaums. Just, there's just so many little lines and f- it moves so fast that you, 
it's so witty and I think moves so fast and so fast and so briskly over what is funny about the different scenes that you're almost left wondering like, wow, that was awesome. Like a really great example is when you're really introduced to Ben Stiller's character, Chaz and his kids, Ari and Uzi, which you and I always thought was hysterical <laughs> that his name, the kids names were Ari and Uzi. But by the way, I was looking up Uzi. Jonah Myerson is actually, I was looking up these kids. I was, I'm always interested. He's a producer on Colbert now. Oh, wow. That's interesting. That's super. So cool. yeah, things take their different turns, but when you're introduced to them and they're in their apartment and he's like just waking them up and one kid, it's funny because like one kid's really into it. I think Ari's really into it and Uzi's like not into it. And you're there's so many funny parts of that 30 second sequence that you're left thinking about it almost minutes later. It almost does in my mind require a second or third viewing to which is not something I did to to appreciate it. When I'm looking over my notes, I'm like, oh, yeah, like I forgot about that. Like I, I just have these little things written down because there's just always there's just always something to, to laugh at. And so I, I think that that's the most attractive part uh, of it to me. And it really begins, I guess, with Royal Tenenbaum and Gene Hackman's performance. He's awesome. The line where they're watching Margot's play, the young Margot's play, and he says, it didn't seem believable to me to her is like the fucking funny, like one of the funniest lines in the movie. It's so crazy. So talk to you a little bit about Gene Hackman's brilliant in this movie, by the way. And and I, I just think he does such a great job. And I was actually looking at award nominations for the film, and I was surprised that he didn't really seem to get too much love from anyone of repute. Like the only Academy Award this movie was nominated for, actually, which is a great compliment, is, is best screenplay. But you would be I was surprised that Gene Hackman didn't get like a lot more love for for his performance oh, uh, as Royal so Tenenbaum. Good. It's so good. He brings yeah. that, you know, he brings that veteran actor presence and gravitas, first of all. But it's really interesting, too. I was interested to learn this in, in my bit of research that I did leading up to the show is that Wes Anderson wrote the part for Hackman and kind of I think Wes Anderson sort of alerted Hackman's camp to that early on that like well, I'm writing this part for Gene and Gene didn't want him. You know, Mr. Hackman didn't want him to do it. You know, he said, don't write this part for me because I'm very picky about my roles. And he said that he doesn't like to have roles that are developed for him. He likes to kind of find his own way into something, which I guess makes sense. He's he's notoriously a curmudgeon as well. Gene Hackman. I think he's a he's a relatively difficult man in real life from what I'm learning about him. But I just love him so much. And, you know, movies like some of my favorites, Mississippi Burning and The French Connection and Everything he brings to a role is amazing. But I love what you said, first of all, about his inhuman cruelty, especially when you see him as a younger dad with the younger versions of the kids. Like, yeah, like, I didn't see a play up there. It's just a bunch of kids in animal costumes. Like, there's such a funny <laughs> exaggeration in, in knowing, especially if you're a parent or an uncle, if you're an adult around kids, you know that normal adults don't operate with that level of cruelty. But again, it's believable because the world is believable. And there's something that comes through that even though, and this is, this is Wes Anderson's sort of the way he crafts a film in general, I think, even though it's not necessarily realistic and things are very stylized from the performances to the outfits, to the settings, there's a believability that comes through how, with how well realized the world is, you know, Anderson knows the worlds and the characters that he creates. There's an authenticity that comes through that. So even though Tenenbaum is this, you know, Royal is this unconscionable bastard. It's believable because it just it just works in this context and they kind of double down on on who they are. But I, it does start with Gene Hackman. 
it is kind of interesting to know that he didn't really want to be cast in the role and then he fought it for a long time and then I think it was Gwyneth Paltrow who said in an interview that Hackman shot this entire movie almost without really understanding what the role was and what Wes Anderson's style was and what the story was like he he inherently didn't get it throughout the whole movie which if you look at this in retrospect you're like wow but he kills it in this role like you would think he got it but maybe that speaks to his talent you know also we have to think back to the Royal Tenenbaums Wes Anderson wasn't a household name just yet now he's very many more films in his style is much more established but back then he was still kind of making his bones, which might have been a way, you know, a part of Hackman not really getting what he was supposed to do. But for me, you can't see that. I think his performance is brilliant. You know, he's the consummate deadbeat dad, the ultimate bastard, once prominent litigator turned disbarred and disgraced lawyer. We learn that he stole money from his kids and he just has a legacy of neglect and inattention. And, you know, he's now looking to patch things up with his estranged family and seeking to make amends for the years of basically abuse and mistreating them and ignoring his family. And it's great because what's threaded through the movie too, is that even though Royal's trying to reenter their lives and he's trying to make right, there's still those old son of a bitch ways that apparently die hard that still shine through. And the fact that he almost can't help himself you know, and there's such an authenticity and a, and, a, and a genuine nature in that. We all know people like that. Maybe it's not our dads or our estranged dads, but we all know somebody who just seems like they're just, they, they have that component to their personality that just, they're a little bit of a bastard. You know, they're a little bit of a hard ass. They're a little bit rough around the edges. And he, he kind of delivers that performance. And he's, he's really, him and Angelica Houston really buoy the movie with their with that sort of, again, that veteran actor presence. And they're very different. What they bring to their, their respective roles is very different. But I just love Hackman in this. I, it's, it's really interesting to, to know that he really didn't understand what he was doing, but just to still shine through with such a memorable performance is just so telling about Hackman, I think. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's pretty amazing, actually, uh, uh, to think about that. Because it does seem like he's actually so clued into what the humor is. yeah. That's funny as hell. I wonder if he realized, I wonder if he learned more about about it afterwards, like when he watched it, if he appreciated his how how essential he is to to the chemistry that makes this move. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We're then introduced, and we'll get to everyone. You already brought up Angelica Houston. We'll talk about her in a moment, but we should talk about the kids. We, we brought up Ben Stiller, so we should talk about him first. Chaz Tenenbaum. What do you think about Ben Stiller's performance in this? This is kind of when Ben Stiller is on top of the world, Ben Stiller, in some ways. So a really big get for this movie, I think. And he does a really nice job, and he's hysterical. I, I, I think Ben Stiller is just so funny, and he's so funny in a lot of different kinds of roles him being like this just really OCD neurotic <laughs> father is hysterical. 
So talk to me a little bit about Chaz Tenenbaum. I, lo- I love Ben Stiller in this. For me, it might have been, of course, we all know him from his iconic comedic roles like the Zoolander stuff. But yeah, he was one of those guys. If I'm remembering correctly, this was the film where he showed us that he could play for drama, too, which, again, we talk about on the show from time to time. That really makes a strong actor for me. We talk about guys like Steve Carell and Jim Carrey, Adam Sandler, Will Ferrell, who could do a turn like that. You know, they could play up the, the madcap, zany, slapsticky comedy, but then they could also do a, com- uh, a dramatic turn that really, you know, is really heartfelt and sincere and you buy it, you know? And this, for me, but, but still with Stiller, it's interesting because he's so, like you said, he has that sort of neurotic you know, Jewish son, bumbling, sometimes slapsticky brand to his comedy, but a very unique brand of comedy. And he brings a little bit of that into this role, too. He's a great character, one of the three siblings that the story centers around. And, you know, he has that manic nature and he's this successful businessman. He developed this crazy business acumen as a kid. That was his talent. You know, he was inherently just an entrepreneur and a businessman. And you showed that at a very young age that he was a business genius and, you know, grew his own companies from a little kid, start buying real estate as a young, you know, making real estate deals. They said as a young teenager and bred this specific brand of Dalmatian mice that he would sell to pet stores in little Tokyo. I think the little Tokyo thing is so funny. And, you know, that the fact that that was his thing, you know, where his brother had an athletic, genius and his sister had a writing genius but that was his that was his bent but he's a simp- really sympathetic character for me because you learn early on you know he's he's super manic he has these two little sons that he's sort of sculpting in his own image you know they run around with those iconic red adidas track suits and their pumas and he has them on this crazy exercise regiment and everything's very orderly but you know from very early on that this mania stems from a tragedy that happened with him losing his wife in a in a plane crash so even though you see that he thinks he's being a great dad and he thinks he's doing the right thing you realize as a viewer that he's not but you don't get angry at him you act it actually sort of elicits your sympathy because you know it's coming from a really tragic place that he's a it's coming from a place of deep-seated sadness and loss that he, you know, he lost his wife and he's, uh, there's a, this inherent fear of losing the other things that are important to him. And, you know, he has this, you know, obviously he's very wealthy. He's very successful. His uh, apartment is really interesting in the context of the film because he has a very contemporary, almost postmodern apartment where everything else in the film has that very Wes Anderson, Wes Anderson-y style of timelessness. You know, that old money New York that sort of blends urban with fairy tale but he he has that very stark postmodern apartment and you know he's conducting fire drills with the kids every night and waking them up in the middle of the night and you know overturning furniture obstacle you know and all that kind of crazy stuff and it's funny it's very telling of Wes Anderson in general because it's funny but it's also there's something emotional behind it you know there's also something that's melancholy behind that that humor and again it's like it makes it funny that the character, there's no self-awareness with the characters. They think they're not being weird. We know they're being weird, but we, they know, they think they're just being normal. That's the way they, that's the way they are. And I think there's a really specific comedy that comes out of that. And I think it starts with this character. I think he's, it's such a memorable, again, that memorable imagery with 
Wes Anderson films, I think this is probably the most memorable. You know, you have the the curly black hair with the stark red sweatsuit. And, you know, if you look around little details like the apartment, there's fire extinguishers and first aid kits everywhere. And he takes a fire extinguisher with him when he comes to, back to his mom's house and stuff. It's just so it's again, it's funny, but there's tragedy behind it. And I think that makes it it makes it smack of real life a little bit, even though it's exaggerated and a little bit cartoony. Yeah, very well said. And the I love his interactions with or the kids interactions with Royal when he's taking them around and Pappy <laughs> getting them to like shoplift and stuff. Yeah, Pappy. <laughs> so it's so good. It's really good. Yeah, call, well, he's like, call me, Miss, you know, call me Mr. Tenenbaum. Okay, call me Pappy. All right. What about we haven't talked about Luke Wilson yet. Richie Tenenbaum, the once prod, uh, prodigy tennis player. Awesome performance. Of course, Luke Wilson is excellent. And uh, I'm curious how you kind of characterize his character. I love Luke Wilson, dude. He Talk about the unsung Wilson brother, right? Well, the really unsung Wilson brother is Andrew Wilson. But Andrew, of course, plays the farmer, I guess, Margot's paternal dad who c- cuts off his finger with the axe. Very small cameo in the film, who also plays Future Man in Bottle Rocket, who's a great character. But Luke Wilson, for me, I always he always had a real charm, charisma and appeal. I always loved Luke Wilson. One thing I learned that I didn't know or I forgot about that he was dating Gwyneth Paltrow in real life when they were filming this. And there's a specific scene that I'll talk about later with Gwyneth Paltrow that you could see that there's some kind of real affection there. Transcends acting for me. But I love the character of Richie. He's, first of all, talk about another iconic look with the headband and the dark Ray-Bans, you know, the 1970s-style shades and the tennis gear. Uh, I think PJ dressed up as him. One Halloween, which I thought was like one of the best Halloween costumes I've ever seen a friend pull off. But, you know, he's great. The Renaissance man, you know, a tennis pro, uh, you know, a once tennis pro who kind of fell off. A prolific and aspiring painter, an avid falconer, (laughs) you know, just a connoisseur of, of good Bloody Marys. Again, you know, this he reminds me of that sort of thing. That's a that's a common thread through Wes Anderson's movie is that that old money eccentric urban oftentimes new york family where it's like you know they have that thing like they're on a regiment like they're taking italian classes and they're taking karate and they're taking you know then and they're taking cooking classes like they're cultured but it's also a little bit odd and you know it's not not a typical thing in the real world and the fact that he's you know you could almost buy into this family until you realize that the that he's also a, the kid's also a falconer, and it's just like it takes it to that next level of absurdity that I love in a Wes Anderson movie. And you know, of course, this character's key story point is that he's in love with Margot, who's his adopted sister, and that's his sort of cross to bear. And it's a you know obviously it's a problem. And the other the other thing that you really need to say about this character is he's the for some reason. He was always Royal's favorite of the three kids. You know, he was Royal's favorite. He seemed to be the most accepting of his dad. But also, he was the one that it seems like when they were kids that Royal paid any attention to and took him out on outings and and sort of just ignored the other two kids for whatever reason. Now, you you never really find out why that is, although it makes sense if there had to be a favorite. You know, Richie seems the most mild-mannered. He seems maybe the most easy to get along with. But, you know, was there, knowing that Royal was a bastard and knowing that he was a gambler and that 
he just kind of flagrantly ignored his family and that he embezzled money from them, even as kids and stuff like that. I wonder if he kind of drew up with Richie, you know, seeing dollar signs and that Richie was going to be this tennis pro, you know, showing the skill from a young age. Again, they never really go into it in the movie. It's a relatively short film to begin with. But I wonder if that was the thing with like Royal sort of uh, taking him under his wing because he knew that he was going to profit from that. So that's an interesting thing that I I just thought of in watching it again. It's interesting, too. I I mean, because we had brought up with Ben Stiller that with Luke Wilson, he's kind of at the like really at the beginning of a peak of his career at this point as well, because we were talking about Ben Stiller. I mean, the year before this, he was doing Meet the Parents and stuff. So he's he's already well off on his career and and before that even. But at this point, Luke, Luke Wilson, his first role is in Bottle Rocket. But then a couple years later, he does Rushmore, as we know, he's in that. But he does Home Fries, which was a, a pretty big movie for him with Drew Barrymore. And then the next year he did like Blue Streak. And that's right. And he was in Legally Blonde. And I remember this. And, and then he did Old School, which is, of course, an iconic role for him. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, like Luke Wilson for a little while was kind of like borderline heartthrob, or at least you could tell that there were movie executives and maybe his agent, maybe he believed like he should be leading man in like romantic comedies and romantic stories and stuff like that. And so like he plays like an interesting role in Legally Blonde that's not really funny at all. And he, he, you know, so it's just interesting to see him kind of through that lens as well, very early in his like more embryonic in his career. And I remember it just kind of scratched that memory for me about being like, Oh yeah. Like Luke Wilson for a while was going to be that guy. And he was appearing in weird shit. Great point. And he's got the look for it too. He's, he's a handsome dude too. You know, he's got the acting chops. He could do the comedic turn. He's got that funny sense of timing, very unique brand of timing, but yeah, I could see that definitely Kyle. And then we have Margot, Tenenbaum, played by Gwyneth Paltrow. And this character is great, too. She's a playwright and uh, a genius in her own right. I don't know. I, I love the line. It's actually of when it's younger, when it's towards the beginning when it's still younger, Margot. But she's like, uh, or no, is it a younger? No, it might be older where it's um, Raleigh St. Clair, I think, comes and says something to her. And she's like, no, I didn't. And don't tell anyone you saw us when <laughs> when. Uh, <laughs> You know, they're try- like said something like, I, "I, you said I can come with you or whatever." So uh, I just, I love her, her fur coat and her cigarettes, and it's so absurd, like the the idea that she could smoke cigarettes for all those years and no one would know. <laughs> it's like insane. Like anyone who know anyone who's ever been around a person, you know, smoke cigarettes. I don't mind, but you know, when someone smokes a cigarette, I mean, it's not, it's Im- almost impossible to hide that, especially for years at a time. So I love that that again that level of absurdity with her. But uh, and then she gets that nicotine sucker and she's like constantly playing with it, which is cool, too. <laughs> but what do you uh, what do you think about this character, Margot Tenenbaum and uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's performance? Such a wonderful and strange character when you really think about it. You know, you got this this beautiful young girl, deeply depressed. She's got she's missing. <laughs> she's missing half a finger. And, you know, I mean, first of all, I, the very definition for any character in any film I could think of, the very definition of morose she just carries that. Gwyneth Paltrow carries that off so well. And I love her look. You know, she's got that black eyeliner, that deep black eyeliner. It's like raccoon-like, just outlining the sadness in her eyes. You know, she just she just looks so sad. And also something that Wes Anderson does so well throughout his films with his his characters and their wardrobes and the settings and even the props. He again, he imbues that sort of timelessness by 
not committing to a certain era. He keeps things very vague in terms of era. So he'll combine the old with the new. For instance, you'll see like a relatively new coffee maker in Chaz's apartment. But later on, you see like an Apple II, an old Apple II computer from the late 70s, early 80s in his, you know, in his office. You know that this is set in a somewhat contemporary era, in a somewhat contemporary New York-like city, let's say. But it doesn't have to commit itself to being a specific year or a specific period. It kind of leaves it open-ended. And I think that lends itself, again, to that storybook feel. And there's a lot of that in Margot's wardrobe. You know, she'll wear a relatively contemporary Izod tennis dress, for instance, and then she'll have that old school 1930s fur shawl, you know, or, or to accompany that. And it keeps things kind of, not that it keeps you questioning, but it keeps things very, it works in a style, for a stylized way. And it feels very Wes Anderson-esque, but also it kind of keeps things, you know, really not period specific. And I love what they do with her, with her outfits, where it feels like she could be sort of one part 40s and one part 90s. And, it, it, you know, the way that blends together is so cool. I love the art direction aspect of that. And I love, you know, as you said, she's the epitome of secretive. You know, she's got the, the stashed cigarettes in the Q-tip box. And she's got the whole setup with the fan and the perfume. And then she could sort of open the window and mislead everybody. And, you know, that that's her whole thing. Perpetually soaking in the tub in a constant state of depression and she's got, we learn about in the in the very Wes Anderson-esque cutaway sequences, we learn about her checkered past with men and the fact that she's cheating on her husband, who we'll talk about him. And, you know, for me, just such a memorable character. Really, probably my favorite Gwyneth Paltrow role. And I love the way Wes Anderson courted her for the, I'm not sure he wrote it for her, but I know he wanted her for the role very early on. And she, she seems like kind of an adventurous actress. You know, she seems kind of... Um, open to try things. And another cool story that I heard is that I think she talked about it in an interview. She's really dear friends with Stella McCartney, which is Paul McCartney's daughter. But I don't think she knew Paul that well. But Wes and they couldn't get the needle drop rights to one of the Beatles songs on the album for the soundtrack. And Wes Anderson knew that she was friends with McCartney's daughter. So he put her up to, you know, like, can you talk to Paul and see if we can get the rights to the song? And they were out, I guess she has a house on, in, out in East Hampton on Long Island, and so does Paul. And he was like, she called Stella and was like, and she's like, oh yeah, like let's get together. My dad wants to go bowling. So they go bowling, and Gwyneth like courts him and says like, Wes wants this song. And, they, and he gave it to her just because they went bowling together, which I thought was like such a charming story. Yeah, that is. And it, it's... She does th this movie a great service, I think. And I know she's been really open about, and again, I don't know much about many actors, but I know that she's been pretty open about not being thrilled with some of the roles she's done in her career. Like I know Shallow Hal, I think is like a massive oh. regret of hers, which actually came out around the same time. But I also know to the exact, the exact opposite is that I think she's been very complimentary of doing this movie, even many years later. Because I think she became really disenchanted with as far as I understand, I think she became very disenchanted with everything after Shakespeare and love and all that. Yeah. All right. That's a That's a That's an iconic one. But for our younger audience, I mean, she's most notable now for her role as Pepper Potts and Iron Man and Avengers and all that in the, the cinematic universe, the Marvel cinematic universe, which she's still a part of. And I was actually looking at her filmography. She's done almost nothing with the in the last 10 or 12 years, with the exception of those movies 
and a few things here and there. And then she does that show, The Politician on Netflix. But I thought that was pretty interesting. She's kind of like, I don't want to say retired because that's not true. But when you look at her films, she Iron Man's 2008. And then it's basically all just Avengers stuff with the exception of just a few things where it's like documentaries and stuff. Isn't that crazy? Just doing that, that project for, uh, yeah, the Iron Man and then crossed over into the Avengers and just always being involved with that and still cops to not really understanding that whole story and stuff. She's very self-abasing. I, I think she's really quite charming, Gwyneth Paltrow. And of course, she was married to Chris Martin of Coldplay f- uh, fame, right? For a, for a long time. Right. And they had a child named Apple, as I recall. That's correct. Which is, which is not necessary. But this is the this is another time here where we pull in some other characters, just like we pulled in Ari and Uzi earlier. We have to pull in two other characters here. So the first one we should pull in is Raleigh St. Clair, played by Bill Murray. <laughs> this is uh, I, first of all, I love the name. The name rules. Raleigh St. Clair is a fucking hysterical name. It's the best. But one of my favorite lines in the movie is uh, how interesting, how bizarre. You know what he's. <laughs> He's got like his weird, like the guy's like always testing. It's so good. What what do you think about that? I would say under understated character. He's not really in the film very much and is actually quite tragic, but I think he brings his own hysterical nature to it. Oh, absolutely. And you know, it shows too that Bill Murray, not only is he willing to play a, a middling part, not a small part necessarily, but as you said, not certainly not a main character. And it's so it's so cool to see that you could have a Bill Murray buoy a project like Ghostbusters or Lost in Translation or Groundhog's Day or whatever type of project that he helms or he's willing to just, you know, play a smaller part. And I love that about him. I think that's really cool. I know he's very um, dedicated to Wes Anderson, that Wes Anderson just tells him he's doing something and he's in, you know, he's just down for Wes Anderson. He loves his vision. I think they get along really well. But very devoted to Wes, which I think is really cool. And he's a he's he's hilarious. And it just reminds me that you and I are just cut from the same cloth because that's my favorite moment and my favorite line too is when he's conducting that little experiment with Dudley and he's doing the box and yeah he's like how interesting how bizarre you know and then he says the whole thing about so you know he's talking into his tape recorder and he's saying like you know combines this this whole thing with a acute sense of color blindness or whatever. And uh, you and an impeccable sense of hearing. And then from three rooms, Ray Dudley's like, I'm not colorblind, am I? <laughs> Which is so, I mean, it's just like that, that sense of humor. It's almost hard to articulate, you know, it's just funny. But that's the type of thing. I think that's one of the big draws for you and I is that we have very sen- very similar dry sense of humor. And Bill Murray just and Wes Anderson's writing just bring that, you know, they just lend that to the project. The other important thing to say about the character is he, he's so sad. He's being cuckolded by his wife, Margot. He knows he's, she's cheating and that eventually they, they hire the uh, PI and then find out that this has been going on for her legacy of cheating and deception has been going on at length for years. So he's a really sad character. But I love that he's also just passionate about his neuroscience and his, his writing and his doing his books. Everybody... There's so many characters in this film that are writers that have books. You have Eli, you have Raleigh, you have Margot. I think, did it say that Ethelene wrote a book on archaeology at one point? So everybody has a book. Everybody's a writer. But he's just, I love seeing Bill Murray in a part where it doesn't center around him. You know, he's not the center of gravity in this film, but he brings, he just brings so much to it. What, uh, <laughs> I'm wondering what you think of Bill Murray's kind of difficulty 
in work like he has a pretty bad reputation in a lot of acting circles as i understand it very similar to chevy chase maybe not as bad as chevy chase right but has been very complimentary of wes anderson working with wes anderson what do you make of that i was fascinated to read a little bit about that someone someone so difficult you know comp- having being so ev- evasive in this compliment compliments of of one man yeah that's what you hear i mean you're absolutely right he has that long legacy of being just a just being grouchy being contentious being argumentative you know not getting along with directors not getting along with writers fellow actors but you know i think a guy like bill murray I think it's fair to say he's a genius. I mean, just the way what he brings to a role, his very unique brand of comedy, his very unique brand of of timing. You could see it in projects like this. You could see it in projects like Lost in Translation. Like a Gene Hackman, although Gene Hackman is not necessarily a comedian, like a Gene Hackman, you he he gets through with a role, the credits start rolling on a film and you're like, I can't imagine anybody else doing that part. Whatever part he played, you know, he brings that that weight to a role. And I think a genius is drawn to genius. And I think Wes Anderson is a genius. I mean, I think what he brought to film, I mean, timing is probably a thing. Luck is probably a thing, but I'll never forget this. Martin Scorsese said, I think this was in like in the very early aughts was asked who's like an up and coming filmmaker that we should be paying attention to, you know, who's going to be the next great filmmaker. And Wes Anderson just had Bottle Rocket and Rushmore out at this point. I, I, don't, I think Tenenbaums was still in development. didn't hit theaters yet. And Scorsese said Wes Anderson. He could have said anybody. Now, you're talking about one of the great film geniuses of the last 100 years calling up Wes Anderson. I don't think that's any accident. I think geniuses, you know, they know genius. You know, they know a fellow genius. And I think... Bill Murray is just, I think they're just like-minded. I, th- I think they're just cut from the same cloth, those two, Bill Murray and Wes Anderson. I think it's, very, it's a very complimentary relationship. You know, I would be very happy with Wes Anderson, too, if I was Bill Murray. He seems to, he writes parts for Bill Murray. They're great roles. They're challenging roles. They're fun roles. And he probably, they probably have the type of relationship where they talk the same language, where there's not a lot of, that doesn't need to be a lot of communication. They just inherently have the same taste and all of that. And, you know, he probably lets, you know, Murray operate with some sort of autonomy, which I'm sure a veteran actor, especially one with the temperament of Bill Murray appreciates, you know, where they, they kind of have this relationship where they could both they're They both have a stake in the vision, the artistic vision. They both have a say in how that, comes out, you know, how that movie comes out once it's in the theaters and they both had a part in making that thing together. Co-creators, really. So I think that's probably what it's down to. And it's interesting to know that Wes Anderson is committed to stable guys like that, like Jason Schwartzman, Owen Wilson, obviously, and the writing and the acting in his projects, and Bill Murray. But then also having the recognition that you also need to bring fresh faces in and experiment. You know, you need to be constantly trying new things. And if Things are going to remain fresh from project to project to have the ability and have the tendency to say, okay, I'm going to bring Bill Murray in again, maybe relinquish him to a smaller part this time, and I'm going to try out, you know, Adrian Brody, or I'm going to try out whoever, Tilda Swinton, or whoever's on the, in, in on the next project, Francis, Francis McDormand, so on and so forth. So I love that. And, uh, you know, Bill Murray, I think Bill Murray and, you know, you, got, you have relationships like that in film. Right, you have Tobey Maguire and Leonardo DiCaprio. You have 
Scorsese and De Niro. You know, you have these these pairings in film and these film relationships that just work out. And I think that's one of them. And I hope it, you know, I hope it continues indefinitely because I think it's just a pairing that just, I think it's a marriage made in heaven. We haven't somehow talked about Eli Cash yet, played by Luke Wilson's brother, Owen Wilson. Now, Dagan and I are big Owen Wilson fans as well. I find Owen Wilson one of the naturally funniest people ever. And he just makes me laugh. Just looking at him makes me laugh. And I'm not saying because of his distinctive nose or anything. He's just funny. And I just love Owen Wilson. I don't know. I, I, I have really fond memories of you and I falling in love with him during Bottle Rocket stuff or that era, obviously. But really, you and I were big fans of Shanghai Noon, the 2000 film where he played Roy O'Bannon <laughs> with so Jackie Chan. I think that movie is fucking <laughs> epic and really introduced me to how funny he could be. And Shanghai Nights, I remember you and I went to the theater to see it and we were disappointed. But Shanghai Noon was awesome. And then, of course, um, you know, th- there's that whole constellation with with Ben Stiller and and kind of everyone appearing in Meet the Parents and Zoolander in some way and all that. This is all happening at this time. But I really dig this role as well as a kind of the neighbor. And he's hysterical. And we, we were talking a few of the a few of the funniest scenes in the movie, I think, are are his, we had brought up early on the, the, the line, everyone knows Custer died at Little Bighorn. What this book presupposes is maybe he didn't, <laughs> uh, which, is a, which is a great line and a really memorable line. And of course, uh, the I know you asshole line when he's getting yelled at <laughs> and, he, and he just reaches up. Yeah, like, like it's so, it's iconic. When those two things, I was like, I remember loving those scenes in this movie. So talk to me a little bit about Owen Wilson's performance in the Royal Tenenbaums. Those are the moments that you feel like Owen Wilson came up with. You know, like the way he was going to react to Royal yelling (laughs) down at him. Like that had to be an Owen Wilson decision. There's such a silliness to him and such a charm and such an appeal. And I think a lot of the silliness does have to do with his look. He's handsome, but he's also kind of odd looking. And, you know, he's also, he has that goofiness that and that self-effacing sort of charm to him where it looks like he's, it appears that he's not taking himself too seriously. And I think that's coupled with a with a raw acting ability that he's actually not credited for and a comedic timing. And I think he pairs well with a lot of actors. Like he pairs well with his brother. If you think about him and Luke in Bottle Rocket, he pairs well with Jackie Chan. He pairs well with Vince Vaughn. He pairs well with Ben Stiller. So he just brings this universal comic appeal and likability to a role. And I love the fact that he plays this character who's like a childhood friend who seemingly always pined to be one of them, you know, to be a Tenenbaum, to be an official Tenenbaum. And there's kind of nuances to relationships. Like he's old friends with Richie, but he was also in love with Margot and all these other things. But the through line for me that's interesting is, you know, the, the Tenenbaums as kids were very successful, very precocious, Margot graduated from high school at a very young age as a valedictorian and became a successful playwright. And Chaz, with his successful businesses and all the money he made, and Richie with being a, a leading athlete, you know, one of the foremost tennis players in the country. And that you could see young Eli sort of pining to be one of them, but the fortunes reversed at one point. You know, the, the Tenenbaums fell from grace. And now Eli is this sought after famous writer. And the fact that he still wants to, he still kind of pines to be one of them, even though they fell from fortune 
and he rose to prominence that he still has that thing. It's really an interesting kind of character trait in the film. And the other funny thing is you realize that he's kind of like the approximation of what he thinks a Cormac McCarthy would be like. Like that's what he's trying to be. Like he's trying to be Cormac McCarthy in spirit. He's trying to, by doing all the wrong things, you know, by not just being a, a great writer, but copying McCarthy's prose and dressing like a cowboy and, you know, doing mescaline and all these drugs. Like he's approaching the Cormac McCarthy thing in all the wrong ways. Like if you know, Cormac McCarthy's a pretty reclusive, but what we know about him is he's kind of like a regular dude. But he thinks he's being Cormac McCarthy by driving the sports car with the ram horns on the front and dressing like the cowboy and doing all these drugs and everything. <laughs> like being a bohemian type. And I think he's just, a, he's just a really funny character. And he's a lot of the comic relief in this film because when things start to get heavy, he's the one that comes in and sort of turns it, oftentimes turns it on a dime and reminds us of the, the comedic elements because he's so over the top out of his mind, the character is. You know, he's just... You know, the way he runs away. I think he does like a couple of times in the film where he's like, you know, Pagoda goes to the window and he's like, there he goes. <laughs> there he goes. <laughs> where he says he's going to go get help and then he runs away and he's got the awesome, you know, he's got those awesome paintings hanging, those crazy paintings hanging in his in his flat and everything. It's so, he's such a great and memorable character and it's, it's cool he's kind of like the fourth Tenenbaum kid in that regard. All right. The only I'm looking at my notes here because I've tried I've been trying to organize this in such a way that we can talk about the characters as they're kind of interrelated. So unfortunately, because it's certainly not least, we get to talk about uh, Ethelin Tenenbaum played by Angelica Houston. And then, of course, we'll get into Henry Sherman played by Danny Glover, who's really underrated comedically, I think, as well. So Talk to me a little bit about Angelica Houston's performance in this. It's awesome to see her. She's fucking epic and uh, still kicking almost 70 years old. I looked it up. I was like, she's not dead, right? And thank God she's not. But, uh, you know, she's uh, I, I guess I didn't know what she had been up to in more recent years. And she does some TV shows and some voices and all of that and uh, appears in some film. But kind of not so active these days. I remember being kind of introduced to her as her uh, as a young kid with her really awesome performance as Morticia in the Adams family That's revival. Right. I forgot about that. And she's she's awesome in those. They're all awesome in those. That you know, Christina Christina Ricci's awesome in those like everyone's great in those. But talk to me a little bit about uh, Angelica Houston's performance. Uh, she's so good, dude. She really reminds me. She's really amongst our great veteran actresses she's just as good as anybody you could imagine and i love that she's the other tenenbaum parent but she's sort of the antithesis to royal you know she's she's very warm she's still got that motherly thing going on but at the same time she's elegant you know she's a professional she's got that whole sophistication going on too which is really cool and she's a great grounding agent for the family you know she seems to be the only normal or normally functioning member of the entire Tenenbaum tribe in fact she seems not only does she seem like she's the only one seemingly not in misery but she seems relatively happy and overall well adjusted the only one that actually she's the only character that actually smiles for like more than the first half of the film she's considering this new quarter you know this new bow and she, not only that, but Houston brings a really, that veteran acting presence to the role. You know, like Hackman, she helps ground the film with those seasoned acting chops. 
She's really a she's really a pleasure to watch. I love the she's great throughout the movie, but I love the scene where Royal sort of pops out on her on the street and remind you know tries to. It's like when he sort of re- reintroduces himself to the estranged family, and he literally jumps out from behind a porch and was like, "Hey, Ethelene, like where are you going?" Blah blah. blah. And they have that whole exchange where he admits where he kind of cops to you know dying that he that he has terminal cancer and he's going to be dead in six weeks. It's a great scene. Oh, yeah. dude, the performance. I mean, not only is it hilarious, but the performances of those two, it's like, wow, you're watching two of the greats duke it out. And not only is it heartfelt, but it's also extremely hilarious. And it kind of goes back and forth like three or four times in that regard. And it's in one, it's one. Yeah, he's like, I'm not, I'm not dying. I'm not dying. (laughs) (laughs) Are you or aren't you? And he's like, what, dying? (laughs) It's like... Like, it's just so, cr- and the fact, you know, the little things like, well, she goes in and he's, he's kind of flinching. Like he doesn't want to admit that he's flinching, but she, he doesn't know if she's going to hit him or not. Like it's so, the little nuances to the acting, you have these two veteran performers that really, they're, everybody's good in this movie, but these two, you know, it just reminds you of like the great actors that you're dealing with. And I think that, you know, that type of thing lends itself so well to the project and the believability of the characters and the story. I love those two, the way those two play off each other because- it's so interesting. There was a romance there at one time. They loved each other, had a home together, had three children together. But obviously, a lot of it that went wrong, you could construe that a lot of that was Royals doing. You know, he he was unfaithful and he ignored them and he mistreated them and sort of verbally abused the children and everything like that. But, you know, it's interesting that two such dynamic people, such, you know, polar opposites, really, essentially, could have this relationship. And you see that there's... There's certain points in the film where you see there's no love lost between those two. They still care about each other, like when they're walking in the park and having that banter together, that playful banter together. It's it's really neat. There's something really, the comedy is awesome, but there's something really heartfelt in that relationship, even though it's a, a relationship that failed. The only other character we haven't really talked about that's important here is, of course, that of Henry Sherman, played by Danny Glover. Now... Danny Glover, I've loved Danny Glover since I was first introduced to Lethal Weapon, which I'm a huge fan of that series. And obviously he's in just a, a ton of stuff and still a working actor. I think his most notable performance to me, I guess most recently, was as Stinky in 2016's Dirty Grandpa, which I fucking love. <laughs> That's right. He's the one that says fuck him up, Alf, which is probably the funniest <laughs> line in the film. You showed me that scene before I actually saw the entire film. So that was and that yeah. is epic. Yeah, when he's like watching, just like he's just watching Alf on TV, and there's like a scene where like something explodes on the uh, in the show, and he's like, "Yeah, fuck him up, Alf." <laughs> As they're like walking, and it's so it's so it's so good. I was dying when I saw that, just absolutely dying. So he and he's also quite controversial these days. He's very political. I know that's turned a lot of people off, but he'll always be a lethal weapon to me. So uh, no worries there. But what do you think about this performance? It's a uh, subdued and not. I think overtly comedic Henry Sherman's character. He's kind of the bow, the the new interest, and it all works out for him in the end. But I like him in the film a lot. I think he's. I, I'm glad to see him there. I like his suits and his, his how he presents and all of that. So talk to me a little bit about how you feel about Danny Glover in the Royal Tenenbaums. He he's great, and you know it must be so hard where you have all these over the top personalities and characters, and there, you know, you have all these odd and eccentric players surrounding you and you have to kind of be the understated one you know you have to just be you know henry is so sweet he's just so inherently such a sweet natured 
authentically nice guy. And he's got to be understated. And also because you care about Ethelene and Ethelene seems so grounded and she cares for the kids and she's kind of the one you're rooting for that you want to see that the person that's sort of pursuing her, that her suitor is going to be good for her. You know, you want, you're rooting for her. You're in her corner. So, and he is, you know, that he's that, you know, they have a, this long standing relationship where he's her business manager and the family accountant and everything, but He's probably, you know, we only see him from when he's introduced in the movie, but you get, you get the sense that he's had a crush on Ethelene for a long time. And he's finally sort of working up the courage to admit to her, you know, to admit his affection and ask for her hand in marriage. And you have that whole great scene where they're walking along on the archaeological dig and he falls in the hole and everything. And he's, you know, you're just rooting for him too. And again, like to be... You know, he has that great scene where they confront, he and Royal confront each other in the kitchen and Royal's being a bastard and calls him Coltrane and then says he didn't call him Coltrane and all that kind of stuff. So he does But if I did. But what if I did? You wouldn't do anything about it. You know, so he's just a great, you know, a great foil for Royal because he's really, he's the opposite of Royal. Royal's a dick and he's just like this nice dude. So he's he, but to be to be understated and all that kind of stuff it must be kind of hard because you probably want to be as over the top as the others and get that recognition and try to do something fun but i love him in this and yeah as you said shout out to Murtaugh and Riggs i mean that's the iconic oh. police you know buddy cop duo there is no there is no other buddy cop duo that's it fuck yeah dude those two the i best. mean those two lethal weapons lethal weapon is awesome i remember when lethal weapon i think it was 4 when they like they were coming back and how excited I was about that because I was like actually getting a lethal weapon that I was like more cognizant for as opposed to going back because I think lethal weapon came out in like 87 and it was like a connection of mine with dads because with that because dad loves lethal weapon. oh they're so they're so charming and I you know I think that's our taste with that kind of stuff probably starts with that it has to come from somewhere right I just want to give a quick shout out to just remember that thought after my shout out but I just want to give a quick shout out to because I'll forget the <laughs> that sort of comic book-esque rogues gallery of ethylene's previous suitors you know it cuts away to those three different dudes like the general the arche- the archaeology right. guy or whatever and who's a, who's definitely an approximation of the bad guy from raiders of the lost ark by the way and you know they, you just have this like rogues gallery of supervillains, <laughs> or you know james bond baddies who were her previous suitors which i think again that's that's why you go watch a wes anderson movie from me it's like those fun little i love a cartoony cutaway and all that kind of stuff but nobody else did that stuff like he's he really started that he was obviously inspired by things that came before but he was the one that brought that very inventive style of storytelling combining graphics and text on screen and all that kind of stuff with cutaways and all that kind of stuff you know he he was the outlier he was the guy who 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 did all that stuff first so i'm sorry i interrupted you on the lethal weapon Oh, no, I was just going to say we don't give an or at least I don't give enough credit to dad for being pretty, pretty influential on a lot of movies that I saw when I was a kid. Certainly things I wasn't supposed to see, but then things that were just funny in comedies. He He's a he's a great viewer of movies like a, he really loves film. So he does. I watched a lot of stuff with him. I mean, he, we would go on. We would go rent things constantly when I was a kid, like all the time. So, yeah, we, we got to give him a shout out to that because certainly he introduced me to a lot of stuff that I really came to love and certainly my humor. I mean, the dry sense of humor that he introduced me to with Monty Python and history of the world and all that kind of stuff right on to 
his love of action films, like he loved Steven Seagal in the nineties, like unabashedly loved Steven he Seagal. He really did. Would rent. Yeah, so like Rue would he would just love that shit. Admit it. I Dad. think he saw a lot of himself in Steven Seagal. He I think Dad thought he was kind of like Steven Seagal. I think that, that was part of it. <laughs> I think he know? was kind of living it for a for a, for a short period of time, for sure. I'm just the cook. Just a cook. Let's see here. Oh, all right. So now that we've talked about all of the characters, uh, Craig Phillips wrote into us on Patreon and he said, "What characters do you two relate to the most and why?" So out of this this gallery of characters here, this list, this ro- roster, which character do you relate to the most, Egan? If you relate to any of them. I'm going to go with Pagoda. <laughs> Pagoda. We didn't bring out Pagoda, played by Kumar Palana. He's awesome. That's the whole scene when he stabs him at the end oh, is like... You son of a bitch. Yeah, I love it. Oh, it's so And then he good, stitches dude. him up. How, how great is Kumar Palana? I was very sad to learn yesterday that he died, actually. He passed away in 2013, but... You know, we know him as Kumar initially from Bottle Rocket, and then he played Mr. Little Jeans in Rushmore, you know, the groundskeeper at Rushmore Academy. And of course, Pagoda in this film, which I think is his biggest, definitely his biggest part of the three films. Oh, it's so, so great the way he was just like a bounty hunter in Calcutta. And, you know, that's how they met. He carried, he stabbed. I think Royal had a price on his head. He stabbed him and then carried him to the hospital. That's, that's, (laughs) That's how their relationship started. But you know what? For me, I think the most relatable character is probably, I probably relate the most to Richie just because, you know, I definitely have my inherent flaws like anybody, right? And like, for instance, as an adult, I'm very bad at keeping in touch and calling when I should, especially mom and dad and stuff like that. But I think it's in my nature to not want conflict and not want to rock the boat. And not, and just want to be the one that's, and not, not that the other siblings are being contentious or making trouble or anything like that, but I just want to be, I just want to have an even keeled relationship with my parents. My parents, I always had this very, I always honored mom and dad. You know, I always wanted to please them. I, that, that was just my personality. And there's all different type of personality types when you have relationships between parents and children. But that was always my thing is like, I always wanted to keep things on an even keel. I always wanted them to be pleased with me. I never, not that I didn't misbehave. I remember, I remember times mouthing off to both of them. It's not that I didn't do that. It's just that if I had myself in a perfect world, that's how the relationship would be. You know, it would be pleasant. It would be on the up and up. It would be upbeat, whatever it is. And I think Richie, and I think I also, for the most part, don't hold a grudge. I'm pretty willing to forgive after a fashion. And I, so I think I see myself most in Richie, most, you know, probably, especially along the Tenenbaum children, I'm probably the most like Richie in that regard, where in this situation, if mom and dad were in the throes of this situation where one of them wanted to come back and make amends and, and patch things up and mend fences and all that kind of stuff, I would probably be welcoming. You know, I would probably be the most like Richie. Richie's also an interesting character because... He doesn't take a lot of shit after a fashion. Like Royal is trying to still sort of brainwash him at the end. And he's like, dad, you were never sick, you know, type of thing. So there's a little bit of that that I admire about Richie too. Or at least maybe that was his character arc after his attempted suicide and all of that. But um, what about you, Kyle? Who do you most align yourself with of this cast? I don't know. I think Chaz is probably my my spirit animal in that regard, <laughs> just in terms of his, you know, that that. Like I always say, that background radiation of of sorrow and and being kind of neurotic and stuff. I'm I'm pretty neurotic and orderly, so I can I can relate to him. And 
I also like, and you had mentioned it earlier when we were talking about Ben Stiller's performance, but there's a lot of, a lot of emotion in his, in his performance compared to others. Like real tragedy did befall him. He has that kind of touching moment with Gene Hackman at the end where he cries and stuff. But I, I like that character a lot. And so I would probably say that Chaz is, uh, is my spirit animal, the character I relate to the most. One other thing we didn't talk about, which is pretty imp- important to this film, is uh, the soundtrack. Dylan Curl wrote into us on Patreon and he says, Hi, Colin and Dagan. I would love to hear your thoughts on the soundtrack. It's one of my all time favorites and I think it's super important to the film. Nico, the Ramones, the Clash, Velvet Underground, Bob Dylan, the Beatles, the Stones. It even uses the Charlie Brown Christmas theme. Oh, yeah. Did any songs in particular stand out to you? Yeah, I got to say, like in the very beginning when they play Hey Jude, or it's like a cover of Hey Jude, I think. Or like some other version of Hey Jude that's not the album version, I think. Could be wrong about that. But I kind of was like tuning in and out, realizing like, wow, this is still playing. You know, like <laughs> this song is still going What for what seemed like several minutes yeah. in the film. So I, I, I like that kind of accompaniment that fades to the background and then you kind of become cognizant of it again. But it is certainly uh, who's who of classic rock, some punk rock, some proto alt rock or whatever you want to call it. So yeah, talk to me a little bit about how you feel about the soundtrack in the film. For me, maybe more so than any other filmmaker, it's so cool to see music music be such an important component of Wes Anderson's films. You know, and I think this is the one at the forefront for me. Now you think about Wes Anderson and you think about everything you're gonna see in a Wes Anderson film. You think and especially down to the look and the aesthetic, right? You think about what defines a Wes Anderson joint symmetry in the frame things neatly at right angles a striking unnatural sort of symmetry to things and static nature to things almost like you're reading a picture book and composing the shot he's great at composing a static shot like a great painting where he pushes the character really far off to the side or maybe a little too low in the frame and uses negative space almost like a great work of art would you know where your eyes being led by the diagonals and the horizontals in the shot and all that kind of stuff And of course, like his keen sense of color, his very specific, oversaturated color palette and the way he combines certain colors like the greens and pinks and the pinks and browns and stuff like that. And of course, we talked about using text and titles and all of that and the timelessness that he does by mixing new and old and creating that sort of timeless feel where it's not like down to a specific era, you know, old clothing and new clothing, old tech and new tech. Gives it that kind of fantasy book thing. But a music is the music aspect is kind of overlooked sometimes with his films. You know, the moments punctuated by great pop, rock, or in this case, in this film, especially alternative tracks. And all the music has an almost timeless feel, much like the look of the film. You know, the songs used are generally not contemporary to the time that the movie came out, number one. And they're generally not super popular tracks, even from a popular band, right? Hey Jude being an exception, but even like a Rolling Stones track that might pop up or a Beach Boys track. And the way the moments are just punched up by the strong instrumental scoring, even if it's not a proper music track with vocals, the way Mark Mothersbaugh scored the movie. And, you know, this had become Anderson's style by the time this movie came around, by the time his third movie popped up. And by adding great music, strengthening a cut or a cutaway or punctuating a line of dialogue or helping to define a new scene or even a character's mood. And you almost can't even imagine 
the movie without it. And that's because I think Gwyneth Paltrow again was saying it in an interview, like Wes Anderson not only writes the film, storyboards them, has them all realized in his head, he has it all choreographed with the music before they even shoot it. And I don't think, I think notoriously he doesn't rehearse. So he has the whole thing pre-planned and then jumps in with the actors. He knows exactly what he wants to see. And the music is a big part of that. It's a big part of the mood. It's a big part of the way the characters are going to translate what they're feeling and a big part of the, of the way the story is going to come through. The music is almost a character in itself in his films. And sometimes it could be jaunty and upbeat. And sometimes it could be more somber and ethereal. But the music always feels like just the right connective tissue to help everything come together. And I think more so maybe in this film than any of the other films that of his films that I can remember, almost music video in a way. It's almost, you know, it's it almost feels like too purposeful when he does it. But I like it. I really like it. Like, you know, the music will just kick in. It will go from A to Z. The music will just kick in. A, a scene will change. And it almost feels like a little, it, it almost announces itself as like it's going to be a little movie inside of a movie for a cutaway or the way the mood is going to ch- be changed by the music and all that kind of stuff. I have a really interesting thing about the music that I didn't realize before we were researching for this episode, Kyle. So I was introduced by, to this to soundtrack by a girl I used to work with. Her name was Helen, interestingly enough. And we worked at a little animation studio. There was only three or four of us at the time, right after this movie came out in the next year or two. And she had the soundtrack on CD and it was like a double CD set or something. And I took it from her and burned it overnight one night. And she was a huge fan of, of Anderson, a huge fan of this movie and the soundtrack. And I got really into it because of her. And she told me this crazy story about the needle in the hay song by Elliot Smith. That's the song that plays while Richie is attempting his suicide, a very dark moment in the film. And she told me this story that Elliot Smith, who I didn't know who that was at the time, recorded this song and then a couple hours later committed suicide, right? So I'm just thinking, Jesus Christ, how eerie is that? Like, that's the, that's the creepiest story I've ever heard surrounding a, a piece of popular music in my life. And I never vetted that story or check, fact-checked it, obviously, or anything like that. It turns out that that's not true. Now, I'm sure Helen had good intentions when she told me that. But I literally carried that story with me for almost 20 years. That Now, it's a very sad song. And it's interesting, as I went in and looked at it, the songs that bookend Richie's suicide in the movie, which is Needle in the Hay, and then the song on the other side of it is Fly by Nick Drake. Both of these artists were extremely depressed that created these songs. And they both did supposedly commit suicide. One OD'd on drugs with they, you know, I think to today they weren't sure if it was a suicide. And the other, Elliot Smith, was found with two stab wounds in his chest and they're still not sure if it was self-inflicted or if he was murdered. Both very tragic stories. But isn't that crazy that I just bought that story for so long that this guy, I had this in my head the whole time and it added a creepiness to the film for me that this guy, Elliot Smith, recorded this really somber, melancholy song. And then a couple of hours later, like within that day, killed himself. In other words, this being the last work of art that he left in the world or whatever. Now he did end up committing suicide just, I think four or five years later, or if, you know, if he was murdered again, they don't know, but isn't that crazy that I always thought yeah, that, that is. I just never, 
yeah. I never fact checked it. So I always just took her word for it. <laughs> so, yeah, that is interesting. Very interesting. What else haven't we touched on that you might want to talk about here before we wrap up? Well, you know, let me just play into that a little bit and talk to you. But this is something I wanted to pick your brain about. And our listeners might have some thoughts on this, too, as we as we speak to them about this. It occurred to me in watching it this time or two that what I really love in a Wes Anderson movie, aside from the look, his very distinctive aesthetic that he's going to bring to the film is the is the silliness, you know, that that that's very specific brand of humor that's kind of become the Wes Anderson calling card, whether he's co-writing something with Noah Baumbach or he's co-writing with Owen Wilson or Roman Coppola. He loves to co-write, which is really interesting for an auteur like Wes Anderson, but he almost always has a co-writer or two. And what's really interesting to me about Tenenbaums and just thinking about his whole canon now, thinking about all his films, is that this, ca- this film, at least in my remembrance, is a little, just a little more darker and a little more melancholy than most of his films. Now, I go in for the silliness. I go in for like, Maybe a tinge of melancholy, but for the most part, I like the silliness. I like the self-effacing humor. I like the characters that are odd and offbeat, but aren't necessarily self-aware. I like the worlds that he creates. I like the the worlds that he sort of puts his characters into and and illustrates for us. I think it's I think it's a lot of fun. I think he has a very. I think his vision comes out of a lot of things. I think it comes out of a really definitive aesthetic style. I think it comes out of his own pain or demons that he struggles with, like his own, like any of us that are artists, right? His own parents' divorce or whatever, whatever he's informed by. But I always, I'm always down for like the comedy aspects. This movie gets pretty dark, man. The Richie suicide scene is, is really hard for me to watch. Not only because of the blood and the whole dynamic of, you know, a terrible thing, slitting your wrist with razor blades, but it's, it's fairly graphic. You like the character of Richie. So it's a pretty painful thing to endure while you're watching it. And for me, it's, it's one of those moments that just gives me the willies and the movie. Again, the movie from that point onward, you have points of levity that are ushered in. And Wes Anderson is very, it seems to be very in tune with doing that. Like not letting things get too dark for too long. He's really inherently tied in with that vision. But this movie for me is like, wow, like this gets pretty, this gets pretty dark for a little while. And I'm not sure how I feel about that because I like the emotional aspects of it. Like you were mentioning earlier, that moment in the film later on where Chaz, who's like the last holdout finally comes around and accepts Royal. And he's like, I had a really hard, you know, I had a really hard year dad. And, and, you know, Royal's like, I, I know you did Chazzy, you know, and, and it's just one of those things. That's just a, one of those really heartfelt moments, but there's not a whole lot of those moments before or after in Wes Anderson's work, I find. And then there's another scene that I wanted to talk to you about. And if you guys can go watch it, the movie's free on Amazon right now. If you have an Amazon prime account, there's a great scene. And again, this may tie into the fact that Gwyneth Paltrow and Luke Wilson were actually dating long term at this point in real life, but where Richie sort of checks himself out of the hospital after his attempted suicide and goes home and he's in his tent in the Royal Royal in the Tenenbaum house. Well actually he finds Margot in his tent, sort of listening to albums. And they go in together and they're talking and they kind of admit their love for one another. And 
they kiss and then they lay down on the bed and she has her head on his chest. And she says, like, is it my fault? And he's like, you know, did you do this because of me? And he says to her, yeah, but it's not your fault. And she says, you know, are you ever going to do this again? And he says, I doubt it. And she, her reaction, it's a little thing, but it look, it's so real. Like she kind of breaks down and she's trying to hold it in. Like you could see she's starting to sob, but it's such a palpable reaction on screen. And it's one of those little moments that you don't think of in a Wes Anderson movie. You think of the silliness, you think of the look and the feel, you think of the the odd and zany characters and the fact that they're sort of inhabiting this really strange world, but you're not thinking necessarily of a really heartfelt movie moment, you know? And I'm wondering what you feel about that, Kyle. Like when you go in for a Wes Anderson movie, do you like to see the balance of the sort of sadness and happiness combined, the comedy and the tragedy, whatever? Or would you rather it just be more like Bottle Rocket, where it's just kind of silly, and if there's any sort of melancholy things, they're really under the surface. It's funny you're actually asking this specific question because it's bringing to mind for me, someone just a day or two ago was messaging, I think, both of us on Twitter about why we hadn't done The Wonder Years yet, which is a TV show from the late 80s and early 90s that we absolutely adore. And I think one of the hallmarks of that show is that it is probably the most artful melding of serious and comedy in such a way that it all feels believable, grounded, and, and it all works. Now, The Wonder Years isn't surreal. It's it's basically based on you know historical 60s and 70s living, and it's awesome. It's a great period piece. And this is obviously much more surreal and silly. But it's a similar kind of comedy for me because I like when things become grounded. We, we actually talked in, about The Office when we did that episode a long time ago that that's another show that does that really well, where think about when... Michael's leaving and Pam can't get to him in time and she runs to the airport and finds him. Yeah. And you don't really hear what they're saying, but there's like a really tender moment between them shared or when Roy busts into the into the office and tries to hit Jim and D- Dwight like saves him. And, and it's, it ends up being funny, but it's not, you know. And so I like that stuff. I like really crazy shit where it's always funny. I love that. You know, you think about 40 year old virgin or something where it's just outrageous and or we brought up dirty grandpa before <laughs> these are really funny sh- movies that are that are not ground but often movies are heightened by mixing things up because i think the real world life is a mixture of drama and comedy every day so why wouldn't that resonate on the silver screen you know i mean that makes sense i that totally makes sense to me and and the fact that that speaks to real life too that you could have a balance of both things or you could have periods of comedy punctuated by periods of tragedy and or have both things or have you know, characters that everything's going right for versus characters that are down on their luck. So I like I like that. And certainly in a feature film format, if you talk about just a standalone movie like the Royal Tenenbaums and not considering Wes Anderson's entire filmography, if it's down just a two hour movie, it's easy to do all that in one thing because The Office is a tricky thing because it established this legacy of being comedic and being tongue in cheek and the characters being sarcastic and never really taking itself too seriously. And then I think it was a big risk to start getting a little more emotional in the later seasons, but it worked. It worked because everybody was a genius associated with that show, essentially. But that could be a big risk. But in a movie, you could do things like that. You know, in a standalone movie, you could do things like that. And it must be hard for an auteur or even a, you know, a a straight up director, but certainly someone like Anderson, where you're kind of going to be beholden to that. You're going to be judged for that. It's like, wow, this movie 
felt a lot darker than the previous movie, especially as an artist wanting to try to experiment with different things. And the fact of not wanting to get bored and not wanting to get complacent and always challenging yourself. But for me, I think Tenenbaums is really a different movie. Like if you're feeling down and depressed or if you're feeling a little bit like you're having a tough week or something, I would tell you to go watch Bottle Rocket. I wouldn't tell you to even watch Tenenbaums until maybe, you know what I mean? Because it gets, it's it's pretty sad. I mean, it even, it even walks the line of ending in a sad way, you know, where, you know, the ending, Chaz and Royal, for instance, have are able to make amends, but at the same time, Royal dies. You know what I mean? So it's very, it very deftly walks the line between comedy and tragedy which makes it feel like reality which is really weird and a sty- such a stylized movie in many regards where you have that you have all those humanistic elements shining through still i think that's what wes anderson's so good at you know you can marvel at his shots you can marvel at his cinematography but you know in the end there's all those humanistic elements the characters the things that they're struggling with the their demons that they're wrestling with, whatever their you know their relationships, whatever that all comes through, and I think that's a, a big part of what he does so well. Well, I'm glad that you chose this film to talk about, and I'm glad that I watched it and kind of re- was reminded it existed. I I always loved it, you know. I just hadn't thought to watch it. I, th- th- I was really thinking about this last night in bed about knockback generally, just how kind of fortuitous it is that we get to do a show like this because it just forces me if I'm feeling lazy or like just I just want to stare at my phone or just you know Mike has got me really watching like QVC and HSN on my own which (laughs) is so funny really yeah I don't buy anything I'm not even interested in buying anything I just and I can only take it for like a half an hour at a time but then I just shut off I don't know it's like really there's a lot of interesting stuff going on on that on that channel that I'm kind of fascinated by by just like I'm, I'm I'm eclectic you know so I'm watching this stuff and I'm like, wow, it's pretty crazy that they can vamp about this shelf for like 20 minutes. You know, it's pretty impressive. That is pretty impressive. I, I don't know. I, it, not, needless to say, it forces me once a week or so to watch a movie or play a game or TV show, even if I'm not feeling up to doing that. And so this was a really nice addition to the list. The Royal Tenenbaums. It's available, by the way, as of the time we're recording this on Amazon Prime. So if you have Amazon Prime, which most of you do, I'm sure you can just watch it for free, which is what I did. But it's uh, also available to rent on various in various places as well. And uh, yeah, we got to eventually work backwards to uh, Rushmore and Bottle Rocket and then certainly move forwards because I, that will force me to watch movies that I've never even seen at this point. Yeah, that'll be fun. I want I really want you to watch The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou, which came right after Tenenbaums. It came out in two. Well, it was a few years in between. They came out in 2004. But that's a great Bill Murray joint. If you want to watch Bill Murray, again, take a lead role and a great ensemble surrounding Bill Murray, too. Um, Willem, Willem Dafoe is awesome in that movie, too. Again, bringing in some some fresh faces. But that's a great one. And also Moonrise Kingdom, if you want to see, which I think came out in 2000, 2012, I want to say. That's a great one for just straight up Wes Anderson cinematography. If you want to see the color palettes, if you want to see the right angles, if you want to see those brilliantly composed shots with that great use of negative space, like Moonrise Kingdom is a masterpiece. And then we'll both watch the Grand Budapest Hotel because I still haven't seen that all the way through, which is supposed to be one of his best. Yeah, that was the most I noticed that that was the one that was most awarded of his films. Yes, I think you're I think you're right. You know, and I think, yeah, I think for the cast and for the aesthetic, everything that everything about that one. But we'll certainly do Rushmore Bottle Rocket. 
those are both really important to us, especially Bottle Rocket. But that'll be a great one. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm glad um, Knockback's having that. You know, it's taking on that look for you that it's it, it does that for me, too. I, I find that especially with when we're, you know, going through your topics with your 10 or a dozen topics at a time because we go back and forth. Of course, we throw it back and forth to each other. You do your 10 or 12. I do my 10 or 12. But that's a nice way to get introduced to some stuff, as you said, that you wouldn't normally watch or check out. And even with games, too, we're doing a big game right now that's coming up in the next week or two that we're going to cover, another big one. So, that yeah, that's been super, super fun. But the game thing is getting so intimidating for me. And I think this has to do, too, with having a son who's getting more aware of different games. Like, Graydon got really into Hollow Knight. And I obviously didn't. Oh, that's I an awesome even, game. Dude, I love that game. It's so good. And I wasn't even aware of it. I think one of his friends introduced it to him back in, you know, November, sometime in the fall. He got it for PS4 for Christmas. And I just watch him play it. And I'm like, dude, it's, it's torture. It's absolute torture because I can't, I have no time to play it right now. And, you know, so it's like more, now more and more things through you, through him coming on my periphery. And I have to, my list is getting is getting crazy, crazy long. So, but you know what? These are uh, these are good problems to have. We can have bad problems. You know, these are these are positive problems. Yeah, definitely. And it's good to hear that he's you know he, he's. Uh, I can't wait for him to continue to mature into a like a nerd gamer because you know Hollow Knight's pretty deep cut. So now he's starting to get into now he's starting to get into the real stuff. The real and I'm glad to hear that he's playing it on PS4 as well. Very good. Yeah, absolutely. Dave, let me uh, throw it over to you for a dad joke as we wrap things up. All right, my friend. Let's do our dad joke. I know it's so crazy to have a, a kid old enough now that's introducing me to games. Now, this may speak to my, you know, old manness with not staying in touch enough, but it's also nice. It's a nice outlet for me. I can just kind of rely on him. Like, hey, what's good? You know, <laughs> he's like, check this. Yeah, it's, check it's this great. one out, Dad. It's, it's- Still got to work with him on Castlevania, but that'll be a uh, that'll be a thing that I'm going to really focus on more and more. I think well, it doesn't make any sense. It, so it it's, really it's time doesn't. To, no, it doesn't make any sense. So, all right, my friend, we'll fix it. 2021 dad joke. This is a new one for as as far as I know. Hopefully, it's new to everybody out there. Cop says, "I'm arresting you for illegally downloading the entire Wikipedia." Man says, "Wait, I can explain everything." <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I like that. That's a pretty good one. Not bad. That's not a good bad. one. Yeah, not bad at all. All right, Dave. Well, very well done. And thank you all out there for your love, kindness, and support of our show, whether on free feeds or on Patreon at patreon.com slash Media, where you can get early ad-free access to the show, the ability to submit questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas to our show, etc. Now, this will be the first podcast, I believe, that goes up on our new schedule because the, po- the shows will now be going up on Mondays. Yes. So just be aware of that as well. You'll note that this is going to go live on a different date and we'll be moving from there in that regard to make room for defining Duke. So Thursdays, it's been real Mondays. Now we do this. What's up? I have to say, this is a reason to look forward to your weekend ending. (laughs) Yes. Right. One of the rare, one of the rare. Yeah. I can't wait for this weekend to end. I cannot wait for this weekend to end so I can listen to a new knockback. That's uh, one way of looking at it. I mean, that's one way of looking at it. I don't know that I would necessarily get that excited. but (laughs) All right. Well, thank you all out there for your love, kindness, and support. We'll see you next time for more Knockback. Until then, goodbye. Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. 
The show is conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman, and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. As you know, all of Last Stand Media's shows, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer support level or higher on Patreon, and we're grateful for your kindness and generosity. Nick DeMarco, Andrew Morgan, Gregory Slavinsky, Stephen Nieder, Ross Marenka, Zach Parsley, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Ben, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Joey Finelli, Jerome Ferreira, SL the FMA, Ryan T. Mandel, Jorge Palomino, Enrique Perez, Don Lee, Daniel D'Amour, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Homeworld Hub, Dennis Barker, William Holbert, Chris Buston, Betty Ann Moriarty, Colin Jewell, Daniel Johnson, Zach Bonham, an unofficial controller podcast, Jay Getter, Vexius, Jeff Mercado, Galja, of Fortuna, Boots, Megadet, Saul Balcazar, Raul Melendez, Jackson Vernon, Eric Harden, Matt Martin, Rodney Coleman, Chris Moore, Antti Kinnanen, Taylor Barkley, Chris Galvin, Ryan Murdoch, Mason Cadillac, Ollie Fritz, Chris Buston, Zach Allum, George Anthony Nunez, Kyle Hagel, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naiman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., Damon Weathers, Richter86, Barrett Boswell, Christopher DeVaio, Kevin Kamaki, Blake Israel, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Brian Chan, Organic Produce, Isaac Wastman, Mubarak, Carlos Algrit, McDog18, Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubba, Ray Lager, David Castanez, Donnie Nolan, Josh Yeager, Matthew Cooper, Cooper, Toothless Gibbon, Martin Beck, Gavin, Joey Andrzejczyk, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Christopher Moore, Lawrence F. Prokop, Colin Davenport, Eric Finkenbeiner, Lou and Ray Loper, Dylan Burns, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Yusuf, Anton K., Alan Tremblay, Tyler Bellow, Tony Zaniga, Sean Battershall, Max Lazos, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixey, Corey Wyatt, James Kinslow III, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, William O'Carroll, JCSO828, Jesper Jansen, Phil Crone, Throw7, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Sean Chandler, Petro Rose, Geo Corsi, Greg Lada, Gerald Pennington, Justin Wagaman, Paul Joyce, Chad Lewis, Todd Paxson, Joshua Smallwood, Shane Ryum, Spencer Brand, John Cordero, Greg Julefs, Keith A. Lewis, Marius Garson Peterson, Tyler Harris, Matthew Purdue, Toby Shootman, Patrick Harper, Mad Mock Media, Jonathan Rice, and Casual Misfits Gaming. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the five-hour energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.